Chapter One of the Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Penn. The Life and Adventures of Sir Lancelot Greaves by Tobias Smollett. Chapter One in which certain personages of this delightful history are introduced to the reader's acquaintance. It was on the great northern road from York to London, about the beginning of the month of October, and the hour of eight in the evening, that four travellers were, by a violent shower of rain, driven for shelter into a little public house on the side of the highway, distinguished by a sign which was said to exhibit the figure of a black lion. The kitchen in which they assembled was the only room for entertainment in the house, paved with red bricks, remarkably clean, furnished with three or four Windsor chairs, adorned with shining plates of pewter and copper saucepans nicely scoured, that even dazzled the eyes of the beholder, while a cheerful fire of sea-coal blazed in the chimney. Three of the travellers who arrived on horseback, having seen their cattle properly accommodated in the stable, agreed to pass the time until the weather should clear up, over a bowl of rumbo, which was accordingly prepared. But the fourth, refusing to join their company, took his station at the opposite side of the chimney, and called for a pint of twopenny, with which he indulged himself apart. At a little distance on his left hand, there was another group consisting of the landlady, a decent widow, her two daughters, the elder of whom seemed to be about the age of fifteen, and a country lad who served both as waiter and ostler. The social triumvirate was composed of Mr. Fillet, a country practitioner in surgery and midwifery, Captain Crow, and his nephew Mr. Thomas Clark, an attorney. Fillet was a man of some education and a great deal of experience, shrewd, sly, and sensible. Captain Crow had commanded a merchant ship in the Mediterranean trade for many years and saved some money by dint of frugality and traffic. He was an excellent seaman, brave, active, friendly in his way, and scrupulously honest, but as little acquainted with the world as a suckling child, whimsical, impatient, and so impetuous that he could not help breaking in upon the conversation, whatever it might be, with repeated interruptions that seemed to burst from him by involuntary impulse. When he himself attempted to speak, he never finished his period, but made such a number of abrupt transitions that his discourse seemed to be an unconnected series of unfinished sentences, the meaning of which it was not easy to decipher. His nephew, Tom Clark, was a young fellow, whose goodness of heart even the exercise of his profession had not been able to corrupt. Before strangers, he never owned himself an attorney without blushing, though he had no reason to blush for his own practice, for he constantly refused to engage in the cause of any client whose character was equivocal and was never known to act with such industry as when concerned for the widow and orphan, or any other object that sued in forma pauperis. Indeed, he was so replete with human kindness, that as often as an affecting story or circumstance was told in his hearing, it overflowed at his eyes. Being of a warm complexion, he was very susceptible of passion, and somewhat libertine in his amours. In other respects, he piqued himself on understanding the practice of the courts, and in private company he took pleasure in laying down the law, but he was an indifferent orator, and tediously circumstantial in his explanations. His stature was rather diminutive, but, upon the whole, he had some title to the character of a pretty dapper little fellow. 
the solitary guest had something very forbidding in his aspect which was contracted by an habitual frown his eyes were small and red and so deep set in the sockets that each appeared like the unextinguished snuff of a farthing candle gleaming through the horn of a dark lanthorn his nostrils were elevated in scorn as if his sense of smelling had been perpetually offended by some unsavory odor and he looked as if he wanted to shrink within himself from the impertinence of society he wore a black periwig as straight as the pinions of a raven and this was covered with a hat flapped and fastened to his head by a speckled handkerchief tied under his chin he was wrapped in a great coat of brown frieze under which he seemed to conceal a small bundle his name was ferret and his character distinguished by three peculiarities he was never seen to smile he was never heard to speak in praise of any person whatsoever and he was never known to give a direct answer to any question that was asked but seemed on all occasions to be actuated by the most perverse spirit of contradiction captain crow having remarked that it was squally weather asked how far it was to the next market town and understanding that the distance was not less than six miles said he had a good mind to come to an anchor for the night if so be as he could have a tolerable berth in this here harbor mr Phillip, perceiving by his style that he was a seafaring gentleman observed that their landlady was not used to lodge such company and expressed some surprise that he who had no doubt endured so many storms and hardships at sea should think much of travelling five or six miles a horseback by moonlight for my part said he i ride in all weathers and at all hours without minding cold wet wind or darkness my constitution is so case-hardened that i believe i could live all the year at spitzbergen with respect to this road i know every foot of it so exactly that i'll engage to travel forty miles upon it blindfold without making one false step and if you have faith enough to put yourselves under my auspices i will conduct you safe to an elegant inn where you will meet with the best accommodation thank you brother replied the captain we are much beholden to you for your courteous offer but howsomever you must not think i mind foul weather more than my neighbors i have worked hard aloft and alow in many a taut gale but this here is the case you see we have run down a long day's reckoning our beasts have had a hard spell and as for my own hap brother i doubt my bottom planks have lost some of their sheathing being as how i ain't used to that kind of scrubbing the doctor who had practised aboard a man-of-war in his youth and was perfectly well acquainted with the captain's dialect assured him that if his bottom was damaged he would new pay it with an excellent salve which he always carried about him to guard against such accidents on the road but tom clark who seemed to have cast the eyes of affection upon the landlady's eldest daughter dolly objected to their proceeding further without rest and refreshment as they had already travelled fifty miles since morning and he was sure his uncle must be fatigued both in mind and body from vexation as well as from hard exercise to which he had not been accustomed Philip then desisted saying he was sorry to find the captain had any cause of vexation but he hoped it was not an incurable evil this expression was accompanied by a look of curiosity which mr clark was glad of an occasion to gratify for as we have hinted above he was a very communicative gentleman and the affair which now lay upon his stomach interested him nearly i assure you sir said he this here gentleman captain crow who is my mother's own brother has been cruelly used by some of his relations 
he bears as good a character as any captain of a ship on the royal exchange and has undergone a variety of hardships at sea what do you think now of his bursting all his sinews and making his eyes start out of his head in pulling his ship off a rock whereby he saved to his owners here he was interrupted by the captain who exclaimed belay tom belay prithee don't veer out such a deal of jaw clap a stopper on thy cable and bring thyselves up my lad what a deal of stuff thou art pumped up concerning bursting and starting and pulling ships laud have mercy upon us look ye here brother look ye here mind these poor crippled joints two fingers on the starboard and three on the larboard hand crooked do you see like the knees of a bylander i'll tell you what brother you seem to be a ship deep laden rich cargo current setting into the bay hard gale lee shore all hands in the boat tow round the headland self pulling for dear blood against the whole crew snap go the finger braces crack went the eye blocks bounce daylight flash starlight down i foundered dark as hell whiz went my ears and my head spun like a whirligig that don't signify I, i'm a yorkshire boy as the saying is all my life at sea brother by reason of an old grandmother and maiden aunt a couple of old stinking kept me these forty years out of my grandfather's estate hearing as how they had taken their departure came ashore hired horses and clapped on all my canvas steering to the northward to take possession of my but it don't signify talking these two old piratical had held a palaver with a lawyer an attorney tom do you mind me an attorney and by his assistance hove me out of my inheritance that is all brother hove me out of five hundred pounds a year that's all what signifies but such windfalls we don't every day pick up along shore fill about brother yes by the lord those two smuggling harridans with the assistance of an attorney an attorney tom hove me out of five hundred a year yes indeed sir added mr clark those two malicious old women docked the entail and left the estate to an alien here mr ferret thought proper to intermingle in this conversation with a pish what dost thou talk of docking the entail dost not know that by the statute westminster two thirteen edition the will and intention of the donor must be fulfilled and the tenant entail shall not alien after issue had or before give me leave sir replied tom i presume you are a practitioner in the law now you know that in the case of a contingent remainder the entail may be destroyed by levying a fine and suffering a recovery or otherwise destroying the particular estate before the contingency happens if theophis who possess an estate only during the life of a son where diverse remainders are limited over make a theophment in fee to him by the theophment all the future remainders are destroyed indeed a person in remainder may have a writ of intrusion if any do intrude after the death of a tenant for life and the writ ex grave querela lies to execute a device in remainder after the death of a tenant in tail without issue spoke like a true disciple of gerber cries ferret no sir replied mr clark counsellor caper is in the conveyancing way i was clerk to sergeant croker ay now you may set up for yourself resumed the other for you can prate as unintelligibly as the best of em perhaps 
said Tom, I do not make myself understood. If so be as how that is the case, let us change the position, and suppose that this here case is a tale after a possibility of issue extinct. If a tenant in tale after a possibility makes a fiofment of his land, he in reversion may enter for the forfeiture. Then we must make a distinction between general tale and special tale. It is the word body that makes the entail. There must be a body in the tale, devised to heirs, male or female. Otherwise, it is a fee simple, because it is not limited to what body. Thus, a corporation cannot be seized in tail. For example, here is a young woman. What is your name, my dear? Dolly, answered the daughter, with a curtsy. Here is Dolly. I seize Dolly in tail. Dolly, I seize you in tail. Shut, then cries Dolly, pouting. I am seized of land in fee. I settle on Dolly's entail. Dolly, who did not comprehend the nature of the illustration, understood him in a literal sense, and, in a whimpering tone, exclaimed, Shat then, I tell thee, cursed twad. Tom, however, was so transported with his subject that he took no notice of poor Dolly's mistake, but proceeded in his harangue upon the different kinds of tales, remainders, and seasons, when he was interrupted by a noise that alarmed the whole company. The rain had been succeeded by a storm of wind that howled around the house with the most savage impetuosity, and the heavens were overcast in such a manner that not one star appeared, so that all without was darkness and uproar. This aggravated the horror of diverse loud screams, which even the noise of the blast could not exclude from the ears of our astonished travelers. Captain Crow called out, Avast! Avast! Tom Clark sat silent, staring wildly, with his mouth still open. The surgeon himself seemed startled, and Ferret's countenance betrayed evident marks of confusion. The ostler moved nearer the chimney, and the good woman of the house, with her two daughters, crept closer to the company. After some pause, the captain, starting up, These, said he, be signals of distress. Some poor souls in danger of foundering. Let us bear up ahead, and see if we can give them any assistance. The landlady begged him, for Christ's sake, not to think of going out, for it was a spirit that would lead him astray into fens and rivers, and certainly do him a mischief. Crow seemed to be staggered by this remonstrance, which his nephew reinforced, observing that it might be a stratagem of rogues to decoy them into the fields, that they might rob them under the cloud of night. Thus exhorted, he resumed his seat, and Mr. Ferret began to make very severe strictures upon the folly and fear of those who believed and trembled at the visitation of spirits, ghosts, and goblins. He said that he would engage with twelve pennyworth of phosphorus to frighten a whole parish out of their senses. Then he expatiated on the pusillanimity of the nation in general ridiculed the militia, censured the government, and dropped some hints about a change of hands which the captain could not and the doctor would not comprehend. Tom Clark, from the freedom of his discourse, concluded he was a ministerial spy and communicated his opinion to his uncle in a whisper, while this misanthrope continued to pour forth his invectives with a fluency peculiar to himself. The truth is, Mr. Ferret had been a party writer, not from principle, but employment and had felt the rod of power, in order to avoid a second exertion of which he now found it convenient to skulk about in the country, for he had received intimation of a warrant from the Secretary of State, who wanted to be better acquainted with his person. Notwithstanding the ticklish nature of his situation, 
it was become so habitual to him to think and speak in a certain manner that even before strangers whose principles and connections he could not possibly know he hardly ever opened his mouth without uttering some direct or implied sarcasm against the government he had already proceeded a considerable way in demonstrating that the nation was bankrupt and beggared and that those who stood at the helm were steering full into the gulf of inevitable destruction when his lecture was suddenly suspended by a violent knocking at the door which threatened the whole house with inevitable demolition captain crow believing they should be instantly boarded unsheathed his hanger and stood in a posture of defense mr fillet armed himself with a poker which happened to be red-hot the ostler pulled down a rusty firelock that hung by the roof over a flitch of bacon tom clark perceiving the landlady and her children distracted with terror conducted them out of mere compassion below stairs into the cellar and as for mr ferret he prudently withdrew into an adjoining pantry but as a personage of great importance in this entertaining history was forced to remain some time at the door before he could gain admittance so must the reader wait with patience for the next chapter in which he will see the cause of this disturbance explained much to his comfort and edification end of chapter one